You are listening to the Horse Radio Network, part of the Equine Network family. Welcome to this episode of Disease Du Jour on the topic of equine sarcoids with Professor Emeritus Derek Nottenbelt, Director of the Equine Medical Solutions Limited in the United Kingdom. The Disease Du Jour podcast is brought to you in 2022 by Merck Animal Health. Dr. Nottenbelt holds the degrees of OBE, BVMNS, DVMNS, a diplomate of the ECEIM, a diplomate of the American College of Veterinary Internal Medicine, and MRCVS. He's a recognized RCVS and European specialist in equine internal medicine. His Equine Medical Solutions Limited was founded in 2016, taking over the sarcoid referral service previously run through the Lee Hurst at Liverpool Vet School. The aim was to continue to provide support and advice to veterinarians on equine cancer cases, in particular sarcoids. Thank you, Dr. Nottenbelt, for joining us today on Disease to Jordan to talk about equine sarcoids. Yeah, you're very welcome. Well, um, let's just start right in. And for our veterinary audience, so is sarcoid a virus disease and can it be transferred from one horse to another? Well, for many years, of course, the, the link between the bovine papillomavirus and sarcoid has been very well established. And there is no doubt that there is a link. It's pretty much 100%. So we do know that there is a link. Exactly what this link is, is a quite different issue. The disease does not actually behave like a normal viral disease. And therefore, our conclusion is that there is something about the disease that makes it very particular. The bovine papillomavirus is the only virus which crosses species. Otherwise, papillomaviruses tend to be very species-specific. But the bovine papillomavirus seems to be able to do this. The problem is that if you have a uh, a virus and a virus infects an animal, they get antibody to it and then they overcome it. That's the that's the rule. That's why we all survive, I suppose, in the end, uh, our daily lives, uh, because our immune systems react to the challenges that we face. And But the problem is that even when horses have multiple and sometimes literally thousands of sarcoids on them. No horse, to my knowledge, is ever seroconverted naturally to the bovine papillomavirus, which seems a bit bizarre to me. So that made me question what this was all about. And then, of course, you can say, well, does a papillomavirus vaccine or previous exposure to bovine papillomavirus prevent the, the animal from getting sarcoid in the future? Well, no, it does not. So you can vaccinate a horse with bovine papillomavirus until the teeters through the roof, but it doesn't prevent the horse from getting sarcoid. So you can see there's a problem. If I, however, take this virus and inject it into the skin of a horse, I get what is called a pseudosarcoid. That is histologically identical, but it gets better on its own. So if we link all these things together, there's clearly something wrong. And I've set out over the last 52 years in this job to try to find out what this is all about. And I'm still not convinced of the search for the virus because so far, almost nobody has found a vegetative virus. So either the virus isn't there and it's a particle of the virus, which is my own hypothesis, or 
the virus has some particular property that enables it to be transmitted across the horse from site to site in the first instance without going through the bloodstream and from horse to horse without, of course, having direct contact. So that means vectors are usually involved. That's my hypothesis anyway. It seems to stand up when you're looking for the for the disease itself and you understand the disease, it fits. There's something vector-driven here that is transmissible both across the horse from site to site and from horse to horse, potentially at least. Not every horse, not every horse by any means, because we know that there are horses that are genetically not susceptible to the virus to the to the disease and those which are genetically susceptible to the disease and of course the problem is which one's which so why are there so many different variations in how sarcoids look their appearance oh that now this is a terrible question this is an absolutely <laughs> shocking question for me to answer because i've been working on this exact hypothesis for many years that there's something wrong with a disease that doesn't produce a uniform response except for one thing. And that is the sarcoid is a tumor of fibroblasts. That is a, a, a cell which is in connective tissue. There's no real fibroblasts in the epidermis of horses. And yet, when you see the early varicose or wart-like stages of the disease, these are those which produce a lot of keratin, a lot of scaliness. They look like warts for want of any better description. That's why we call them varicose. When you look at those, you can find that the, these this change is an epidermal change. It has to be an epidermal change. So now, what's the link? Well, the hypothesis is that the fibroblasts actually produce mediators, cytokines, chemical, chemo chemokines, whatever you want to call them, that diffuse out from the tumor and, and influence the surrounding cells like the papillomavirus would do if it were in the epidermal cells itself. So, so I think the early signs are the occult signs where there's a circular area of hairlessness with a little bit of hyperkeratosis within it, usually sometimes skin atrophy, a little darkening of the hair, sometimes a little lightening of the skin. So you can see there's usually a little change which occurs in the earliest forms of the disease. And then once this develops, then you start to get this progression of disease. And of course, then it moves from there into the more varicose ones, more and more varicose with ulceration, and then in the natural course of events towards a fibroblastic nature where they have a very proliferative, very fleshy, ulcerated appearance. Of course, there's a problem, and that problem is that the nodular sarcoid is not compatible with this. So how does a nodular sarcoid develop? Those are ones which occur under the skin or attached to the skin, but have a circular spherical little golf ball type thing, sometimes smaller, sometimes bigger, sometimes enormous uh, um, form to them. Well, that's a difficult thing to, to try to understand as to why that happens. But my hypothesis, my theory, which I believe to be at least valid in some way or another. I'm not a scientist and I'm not a, I'm not a very erudite person. I'm a clinician in disguise, really, um, uh, is that these nodular lesions, the ones that develop under the skin, are a consequence of the sarcoid change 
whatever you believe that to be, whether it's a virus or whether it's part of a virus or something else entirely, is deposited under the skin. And if you have that, this tumor will produce a predictable fibroblast-related tumor, otherwise known as a fibroma, sometimes neurofibroma is given to those, sometimes low, a low-grade fibrosarcoma. So you can see a lot of different names given to these diseases, which just confuses the issue altogether. You know, the name sarcoid is a ridiculous name. It, it doesn't mean anything, and it belittles the disease in the eyes of the owner for the most part. So a lot of different varieties of thing, uh, and this is the only tumor that really has this kind of range of pathology. And pathology is always the same uh, if, histologically, but the gross appearance has these six different varieties of sarcoid culminating, of course, in the very aggressive malignant or what used to be called the malevolent form because pathologists didn't like the word malignant because it doesn't metastasize. So uh, I still call it malignant because it's locally invasive, destructive, tracks down blood vessels, tracks down you know, nerve fibers, does all sorts of ridiculous things that we would normally ascribe to malignancy in any other species. What is the prognosis for a sarcoid? And, and there's, I know there's a lot of debate if they should be left alone or, yeah. you know, what, what should mm. you, a veterinarian do when he sees one of these? Well, I think the first thing you have to do is to ask yourself, is this, first of all, a sarcoid? And if you make a diagnosis of sarcoid, then you have to ask the next question, which is, is this tumor going to get smaller, easier, and less dangerous if I leave it? Or what? Well. Frankly, it's going to be the or what, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, going to, it's going to become more difficult, more dangerous and bigger. So, so that's the natural progression. It's like every other cancer, you know, do we want to deal with a cancer on any one of our bodies when it's small, easy, accessible and understandable? Or do we want to wait until such time as it becomes catastrophic? And for us, that's a no-brainer. But therefore, for veterinarians dealing with these, this condition, we have to understand that we have to take a different attitude toward it. Now, the difficulty here is if you interfere with the sarcoid and you don't resolve it, it is catastrophic. Now, we know that, that over 80%, we're just doing some number crunching at the moment, but just to bring you up to date with my latest little bit of fresh information, is that interference with sarcoid makes it worse. So you can either interfere by trying to remove it surgically and not having a safe margin, assuming you want to prove to yourself that it hasn't got a safe margin, we'll come back to that later, but either you want that or you're going to expect a, a dramatic deterioration. So if you, if you biopsy a sarcoid or if you excise it without a complete excision, you have to expect that 85% of these lesions will exacerbate both in terms of the type of sarcoid involved. In other words, it will shift the sarcoid toward the right, if you will, towards the more dangerous malignant form of the disease, fibroblastic and then malignant forms. Uh, uh, and of course, it'll make it grow faster. So not only does it get worse 
in pathology, it grows faster, it gets bigger, and it's dangerous. So now comes the biggest dilemma, and probably the reason why a lot of people don't want to interfere. You know, I'd rather not interfere because it's growing slowly, and if it, you know, the horse may die with it, not because of it. So, you know, that's the, I suppose that's the philosophy behind the attitude that has been, I suppose, it's become the dogma, really. Uh, and, you know, dogma is for questioning. You know, we should always question dogma. Every single day of our lives, we should question the dogma. Is it right? Or is it just a hypothesis that's been put out by some erudite person in the dim and distant past for reasons which then were perfectly valid, but which now do not seem so valid now that we understand the disease better. So uh, the the problem is, you know, that if you've got a sarcoid on a horse, you have to be very careful for several reasons. And, and I suppose the first of those reasons is you, to answer that question, is this tumor going to get smaller, easier, and less dangerous? And if it is not going to do that, it's going to get bigger, more difficult, and more dangerous. And therefore, what justification is there for leaving it? We would never leave a tumor like that on ourselves or on dogs or cats or kangaroos come to that. But on a horse, it somehow seems to be, well, it's okay. I'm petrified of it because if I touch it, I'll be in court in 10 minutes <laughs> with a lawyer hot on my tail telling me that I made this horse worse and now look, it's terrible and now I can't sell it. And of course, it was always an Olympic winner. You know, they always are, aren't they? Yeah. Do you, do you recommend that veterinarians biopsy a sarcoid just to confirm it is a sarcoid? The, 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 the concept that biopsy is dangerous is important because if you biopsy it without intent, in other words, you're going to say, I believe this is a sarcoid, I'm going to prove it's a sarcoid, but actually, I'm not going to do anything about it anyway, then you should not biopsy. But if you have a strategy to deal with it, you have to say to yourself, this sarcoid is a dangerous sarcoid. I'm going to biopsy it because I have a plan for treatment. And my plan will be if this is a sarcoid and I and I can and that is proven histologically, I have this plan to deal with it. And that plan really needs to be some evidence-based management system that that it gives you a chance of success. Given the same nature of cancer, because we believe contrary to all the dogma that goes with owners, that a horse, a, a sarcoid is a wart. You know, if I tell you you've got a wart on your finger, you say, so what? If I tell you you've got cancer on your finger, you say, bring the knife, chop at my elbow. You see, I don't want cancer. And, you know, we're prepared to accept amazing cosmetic problems and amazing trauma for our, for our own life-saving cancer surgery. So why suddenly is a horse exempt from the same approach? But as I said, if you interfere and you don't have a plan and you're going to say, right, what I'm going to do is I'm going to biopsy this. And if it's a sarcoid, I'm going to change my job and I'm going to fly to Australia and I'm going to sell ice cream on Bondi Beach instead of being a veterinarian. You know, then it's fine. You know, go ahead and then get your passport done and get away quick as a flash so that you can't be pursued. But, you know, owners are very intolerant of this and they just simply don't understand because for many years, 
I've been just as guilty as almost everybody that we belittled the disease. You know, we just say, well, so it's a little sarcoid. So what? You know, and then suddenly there's two, you know, and then there's suddenly 22. And then suddenly five of those 22 are nasty things. And, you know, oh, hell, what's going on here? You know, and then you have to try to think of a strategy to deal with it. I, I think we have to understand the epidemiology better. We have to understand the risks of interference better. And we have to understand what the consequences of that risk are in terms of the exacerbation, the dramatic deterioration that does occur that renders the tumor suddenly untreatable or at least treatable, but with major difficulties. So then why do occasionally some sarcoids, and I'm doing air quotes around this for because this is a podcast. So why do some sarcoids just spontaneously resolve without doing anything? Ah, uh, now that is the real question, because there's a very interesting thing, and I'm shaking my finger now because this is also a podcast. Uh, there's a very interesting point that you raise here, because uh, it is well known, and we will all have seen these cases. You know, when you go and see a horse, you see it's got a sarcoid. The owner says, look, you can't treat it now because I've got an event next month and a month after that, and then we'll see you in December, you know, uh, and uh, and then you can cut. And you go out in December looking for the sarcoid. You've got your knives and your lasers and your whatever it is that you want to treat it with, and you go out there and you can't find the sarcoid. It's gone. It's disappeared off the face of the earth. Now, that is a very interesting pathology. It's a, it is a recognized pathology in a lot of human tumors, as well as dog and cat tumors, where there is a spontaneous resolution. And it, it's just a question of the proportion of cases that get it and how you can predict which one's going to do it. Because that's the most important thing of all. So you can say, oh, I got a gut feeling that this one's going to get better on its own. And it doesn't. The client's on your back in five minutes and the lawyer letter arrives in the post the following day. Well, why didn't you interfere with it or treat it when I asked you to do it? And so, well, I had a gut feeling it was going to get better and said, that's not good enough. And the difficulty is now we begin to understand this pathology, which are very interesting immunological pathology because. There are two classes of sarcoids which spontaneously resolve. Those which resolve one or two lesions amongst many. In other words, this horse may have 10 sarcoids, but two of them disappear, but the rest don't. They continue on their merry way, getting worse. The other option is that a horse has five or 10 sarcoids, and they all resolve spontaneously over a very short time, usually over two months, no more than that usually. But in the French Montaigne horse, which is an interesting Swiss breed of horse, they, they had 63% of cases res spontaneously resolved. But it took years for that to happen. And of course, because of that transmissibility that we expressed before, I'm not so sure that this is such a good idea waiting that kind of length of time. But of course, it's just an interesting observation. In Sweden, it's 10% of horses. In the United Kingdom, it's around 1% of horses will spontaneously resolve at least some, not necessarily all, at least some sarcoid. But those which resolve all their sarcoids within a very short time seem to me, from my records as well, 
to be solidly immune to the disease, even though they have the genes which impart susceptibility to it. But there's no seroconversion. There's no immunological detected mechanism that you can say, oh, this horse has got antibodies to sarcoid. And that's why when you vaccinate a horse for papillomavirus, it doesn't sort them out because this pathology is a very particular thing of which more and on presently we will be exploring this. And most people will be very interested in this particular aspect of the disease because they are very interesting cases between the two kinds of spontaneous resolution, the partial ones and the complete ones. The partial ones get more sarcoids and they go on their merry way, sometimes with some getting better and sometimes not. But the ones that resolve everything in one go, they are seem to me to be solidly immune. And I've followed some of these horses for 25 and 30 years and not a single sarcoid ever develops, even though they were living next door to horses with sarcoid, they're living next door to cattle, they're living next door to all over the place. So it's a very interesting question and an amazing bit of uh, interesting pathology, which is going to be revealed shortly, I hope. Today's Diseased Is Your podcast is brought to you by Merck Animal Health, the maker of prestige vaccines, Banamine, Panicure, Regimate, Protozil, and other trusted equine health solutions. Merck Animal Health works for you and for horses. Learn more about Merck Animal Health's comprehensive portfolio of products, as well as their unconditional investment in our industry, profession, and community through programs such as the Respiratory Biosurveillance Program, the partnership with Equitrace, which delivers secure, streamlined record keeping and instantaneous temperature measurements when coupled with Merck Animal Health Biotherm Microchips. Visit MerckAnimalHealthUSA.com for more information. Okay, now I'm, I'm going to ask you a little bit. This question is going to take a little bit longer to answer, but I just wanted to put it out there and let you discuss it. So what treatments are available for sarcoids? <laughs> and can you give us a, kind of the pros and cons? Because yeah. our veterinarians are yeah. like, okay, so now what do I do? Yes, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And as you can imagine, uh, I, I get cases every day, you know, lots of cases come into to my to my service every single day with exactly this this thing. They can diagnose the problem. And we know that clinical diagnosis is very easy in sarcoid, particularly where there's lots of them. So we are, as you can imagine, this is the next big question. Now, you've told me that this is a sarcoid. I'm not going to biopsy it because I know it's a sarcoid and there's a threat of exacerbation. But I want you to tell me what to do so that I can get 100% success. Well, firstly, forget that idea because there's no cancer in the world as far as I have been able to find out that has a 100% uniform resolution in response to a single treatment method. Now, that doesn't mean to say that somebody can't get 100% success if you select your cases well enough. So if you say, I'm not going to deal with anything that's bigger than my thumbnail, which is a very small thumbnail because I bashed it many years ago uh, and it's now very small. Okay, so if it's a tiny tumor, I'm going to take out a big piece of surgery. I'm going to take out a big piece of skin around it and I'm going to resolve that. And I'm going to send it to the pathologist. They're going to tell me it's clear and that's fine. So if we if we restricted ourselves to that kind of attitude, then the surgical option is always very good. Why? It's fast. It's easy. It's accessible. We can do it with 
minimal consequence. We can do it cosmetically in some cases. But if the pathologist then reports that you haven't got a safe margin, you have to be able to do something else. And that multimodality treatment, I think, is something that we need to encourage much more. And in particular now, because of the onrushing supply of lasers. Now, laser surgery is a good kind of surgery. It's a very easy sort of thing to do, provided you know what you're doing. But with all tumors, you require a safe margin. You require a safe surgical margin. And that doesn't matter whether you've got a blade or a laser. Now, somebody told me the other day, oh, yes, but if I didn't get it, if I can go a bit closer to the lesion, if I've got a laser, because it gives me a little buy, a little burn beyond the edge. In other words, I'm doing a little bit more than the laser edge itself. I said, well, do you know what that margin actually is? that margin is probably not much more than a millimeter. And is a millimeter anything worth having? Well, I'm not so sure that it is. Laser has an advantage. It's a bloodless field, painless afterwards, hellish painful during. I know that from personal experience, hellish painful during the process, uh, but completely pain-free afterwards but they don't heal very quickly. So that means we tend to bias towards uh, a surgical intervention of some description. But there's a problem. And that is, you can excise a tumor, of course, surgically by doing whatever kind of treatment you want. But if you remove the whole tumor, are you removing every single cell from the surgical site? Well, that's a big, a big issue. Can you remove the whole tumor without seeding single cells back into the site? So that begs the question, what happens after a failed surgical intervention? Actually, a failed treatment intervention of any sort. If you don't get rid of the last cell, whether that is at the end of the last root of the last bit of the tumor, or whether it is a seeded cell that is dropped into the wound bed during the surgery. That's why I never use swabs. I never use instruments more than once. No instrument touches the horse twice uh, during my surgeries. The, the instrument goes on and holds the tumor. It's either got to stay there where it's put, or it's got to be put in a little bucket next door so I don't go back and use it again. I don't use swabs. Because I think if you put swabs on the top of a tumor, you pick up cells, then you swab the wound, and the cells drop in. That's a very, very common philosophy in pretty much all oncology, where you have these seeded cells that drop into the wound. And of course, after you've done your surgery, you've sewn it up, and everything looks hunky-dory, and you can say to yourself, well, that's a good job. And then two weeks later, the wound is broken down. That's the first sign of something going badly wrong, because no wound should ever break down. It should not break down. Breakdown is a bad sign in my experience. And then suddenly you think, oh, goodness me, there's tumors coming along the wound edge. There's tumors coming out of the wound. And of course, now, you've got a problem because now instead of one tumor that you've removed, you've now got 10 along the wound, the wound side. And the owner doesn't see the humor of this usually. You know, they've paid money for you to remove one tumor, but now I've got 10 instead. 
So, you know, they bought extra tumors, if you like, with their, with their investment with you. And that's not the greatest thing. So that's led, of course, to the development of a whole lot of other treatments. And if you look at the panel of treatments which are available, I've tested 40 different treatments in my time over 50 years and, and combinations of those. So you can imagine if you've got 40 things and you can have different combinations of those, you've probably got 250 different kinds of treatment that you could apply. Now, why is that? Well, as soon as a disease, one disease has 40 different treatments, broad, broad treatments, okay, you say, what does that mean? Well, it means that none of them is universally effective. Otherwise, we would just stick to one, wouldn't we? And that, of course, begs the question, you know, if somebody says to me, well, I always do this and I always get good results, I say, just like Muhammad Ali, you know, if you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you always got. So you might as well ask yourself the question, is this good enough? And if it is good enough, that's great. Go ahead and do it. But publish your results. Publish them and tell us all how you get a result that nobody else achieves. And then, of course, you say, well, what other treatments then? What does this panel mean? Well, you go for the surgery things first. Then you go for ligation. You know, putting a band around things, you know, putting a lamb castration band or an elastic band or a ligature around the base of a tumor. I have a very unhappy feeling about this because it seems very crude. And you're very lucky if you get them. You're very lucky because how do you know where the root of the lesion is? And I always say when I'm explaining this to owners, I say what you can see is the palm of your hand. And I'm holding figuratively here. I'm holding my palm of my hand up. What you see is the palm of my hand. What there is are my fingers all the way around in every dimension, apart from outside, of course. So, so this is really why there is this difficulty with all cancer treatment. When a human goes and has a piece of cancer surgery, they have a piece cut off, then they have some chemo. Then they have some laser, some, some, some radiation. Then they have something radiation again. Then they have some more chemo. And it goes on for five years. And owners accept that. You know, people accept that for themselves. And then the doctor tells you you're fine. And then three months later, you're dead. You know, this is cancer. And the sarcoid is no less than cancer. It is a tumor condition. It is a cancerous condition. In every other species, it will be classified as that. But in horses, it's classified as a wart or a papilloma. So that's led to the burgeoning of a lot of different kinds of chemotherapy, those which go topically, the things that can be put on the top. There's some things like a blood root ointments, zinc chloride ointments, AW5, the stuff that I developed many years ago as well. All these are applied on the surface, podophyllin, aldara, imiquimod. These kind of things can be applied to certain tumors under certain conditions in certain locations in lesions with certain histories. And by the time you panel all that together, you have to be able to select the right treatment for the right lesion in the right location at the right time for those horses which have had the right history. Has it been interfered with before? Has it had surgery before? Has it had cryosurgery before? All these kind of things. So this 
panel of topical treatments fits into that bracket, really, where there's horses for courses, I suppose, where you say, these are treatments which are available, and I'm going to select this for this reason. It's convenient, it's easy, but, and if it goes wrong, I've got a plan, because the moment you put a treatment on it, you have to say, what am I going to do if this goes wrong? You can't just go in and say, this is going to be 100%, because that will never happen. It's not the successes in our lives that make a difference. It's the failures, isn't it? You know, those are the things where owners send a legal letter and the lawyers are down on your back in five minutes and you're phoning your your insurance companies and saying, look, I've got this problem. You know, and they say, well, why did you do that then? You know, and they don't help you either. They don't want to help you. So, so those are the topical treatments. Then you have the intralesional ones, those things which you can inject into the lesion. Now we've got two options. We've got the chemotherapy options, and we've got the immunotherapy options. And there's things like BCG vaccine, which is a human TB vaccination, which you can inject, particularly around the eye. But why doesn't it work on the leg? It's the same horse. It's the same blood. It's the same skin. It's the same condition. It's the same everything. But if you put BCG on a sarcoid on the limb of a horse, it'll make matters worse. But if you put it in the eyelid region, you've got an 80% chance of a successful outcome. So there's a bizarre differences in this locational thing as well, you see. So if you know about the axilla, the armpit of the horse, be careful of those lesions. Why? Because there's loose connective tissue underneath, nothing to stop them from expanding. And they just go on getting deeper and deeper and deeper. So by the time you see them, they look small on the outside, they're massive on the inside. So you've got to be careful. Do you need something with penetration? So this is the circumstance where you may need some immunological treatment. And this, the latest thing in the States, and we, we use it a lot here, is immunocidin. We have a slightly different way of doing it. It's marketed by a company in the US. I think it's Novaviv, in case anyone is interested. It's a good material. Make no mistake, it's, it's a promising, a helpful contribution towards the panel of our immunological methods of treatment. and But it's got to be done in a very particular kind of way, and you can get better results if you fiddle the method. Now, the manufacturers have a way to tell you how to do it, but I think we can do better than that, and our results are actually better than I was getting when we did it their way. So the, the material works well. We just have to understand more about how it's best used. Then we come on to the, the next set of treatment options, which is radiation. Well, radiation is the gold standard for all cancer treatment, but it's not available and it's hideously expensive. And there are places that do it in the States. There are places in Europe. We've lost our one place that did it in the United Kingdom, not available in South Africa, Australia, you know, India, Pakistan, or anywhere else you might go. It's not available. So those people who have that available have a very big privilege. But then radiation is a very specialized kind of approach. We treated nearly 500 horses with iridium wires many years ago at Liverpool, and, and the results were uniformly excellent, over 90% success. Please note, not 100%, okay? We, didn't, we never got 100% with anything. On an individual case, we've got 100% resolution, but overall, with large numbers, it's very 
I think it's impossible to get a 100% success rate unless you are so selective about the cases that you do that you eliminate all the ones that are unlikely to succeed or even vaguely unlikely to succeed. So that leaves you with a radiation. Then comes all the other kinds of treatment, photodynamic therapy, you know, all the, uh, I, I, I hesitate to call them nonsense things. Uh, because these are things that people apply, herbal remedies of one sort or another, homeopathic things, crystals hanging over the back of the horse, you know, um, dietary things, you know, um, magic mirrors in the stable, all this kind of thing. And interestingly enough, every now and again, there is a response. Now, if you look uh, and see what people talk about. They talk about black salve, green salve, red salve, blue salve, all this kind of stuff, ointments that people make up themselves. And the latest one that we've heard of is tomatoes and toast, and where you toast the white toast, no crust, mind, and you toast it and you toast it until it's completely black, then you grind it up. Mustn't catch fire, by the way. You catch it fire, you start again. You got to grind it all up, and then you take the tomato flesh, no seeds and no skin. You put the flesh in and you grind it up and make a paste. And that's 100% successful. You know, and you say to yourself, how the hell does that happen? And the same happens to turmeric, you know, curry powder, curry paste. You know, it's really for flavoring chicken and, you know, rice and stuff, you know. But people have decided it's good for this. And they rub it onto sarcoids. And then suddenly one sarcoid goes away. Now, that's interesting because it just happens every now and again with almost every treatment where you do something that's ridiculous and it gets better. And that flashes around the Internet in 10 minutes. And suddenly now this is the treatment of choice for everything. And all the owners, because they don't have to have a veterinarian, they can go down the supermarket and they can buy toothpaste with fluoride in it, or they can buy turmeric paste or thuja or something or other else. Anything beginning with a T, it seems to me, seems to work very well. Maybe that's a prerequisite. I don't know. Tomatoes, thuja, toothpaste, turmeric, you know, all the usual teas, you know, tinsel hanging, tinsel round the necks, you know, Christmas decorations and so on. So you can see that the fact is that there's so much variation in the available treatment that there's so little evidence being put out up there in front of you to make solid judgments. But I think if we look after the reasons why we are going to choose a particular treatment, you know, what kind of sarcoid is it? Where is it? How big is it? How long has it been there? You know, these kind of things are very important in establishing a, a treatment method that works for a particular horse. And you'll get failures. You know, so owners need to be told, you know, there's no treatment that's 100%. And if we tell owners this in advance and we say it's cancer, and, you know, do you know someone who's had cancer treatment and it didn't work? Oh, yes, you know, my, my granny, my auntie, my uncle, my friend went into a cancer hospital and never came out again because the treatment didn't work. Well, why is it so different in horses? It isn't. It's the same. It's the same problem, the same everything. So actually, ultimately, you know, this kind of thing has to stop. And we have to start thinking in a more constructive way about using multimodality treatment. And that's something which I'm really interested in. So if you do surgery, 
Can you inject some carboplatin around it? Can you put little cisplatin beads around the surgery? Can you combine that with some immunological treatment? Can you follow it up with some other form of treatment? Because there's no systemic treatment that is practical to deal with this condition in horses. And there are no vaccinations. The auto-vaccination system the ESPY system, which is widely used in the States, I believe, where you take some tumor, you cut it up into little one centimeter cubes, and you put it in liquid nitrogen in little envelopes, and then you put little uh, little incisions down the side of the neck of the horse, and you drop these little cubes of previously frozen tumor tissue into the, into the, into the little pockets. Some people get great results, but other people get appalling results. And and I just say to myself, if I went to my doctor and I had a tumor on my arm and he said, don't worry, I've got a plan. I'm going to cut up this little tumor into little cubes and I'm going to inject, I'm going to put it in little pockets down the side of your neck. I don't know what I would think of the doctor. It just seemed bizarre to me to why that works. But work it does in some cases. And I've seen cases that have worked. I've seen catastrophic outcomes from it as well come to that. So it's a question of whether you want to put one leg in the freezer and one leg in the cooker, because on average, you're very comfortable. And the average may or may not be such a great idea. So that gives you some sort of broad background, I suppose, on really why there are so many treatments and what is available to you. You know, what what can you do? Can you get radiation? No, I can't. Right. OK, so I can't do that. So what can I do? Oh, I can do the surgery. OK, that's fine. Can you uh, use an adjunctive carboplatin? Can you use adjunctive 5-fluorouracil topically or in- intralesionally? You can do any one of those, but make a decision and then go for it. And once you go for it, you go and you don't slack you, because cancer treatment doesn't tolerate that. You have to drive forward to the point where you either win or the cancer wins. And I'll tell you something, we've just got to be determined that we are the winner. We have to be the winner. And Dr. Nottenbelt, I want to go back because we we have talked a lot about some of the specifics and and. I've, I have greatly enjoyed this because I have faced this in, in my own and other people's courses. So, again, what factors influence a veterinarian's decision for what kinds of treatment? What, what, what is the list? Right. The, the, first thing to, the first thing to do is to, is to, to describe the type of tumor. The, the, the class of sarcoid, where, is it a occult sarcoid where it's a little circular area? And actually, when you pick up those, they, look, they just look like round circular areas of hairlessness, very often mistaken for ringworm, actually. <laughs> and that's the common thing, you know, alopecia areata. People say, oh, look, it's got a little patch there. But if you pick up the skin and slide it between your fingers and just run it between your fingers, you feel these little gr- gritty little bits in it. Those are the sarcoids. The sarcoid is not the whole thing. So that's this, the most superficial, easiest type. Then, of course, the extent of that. So sometimes you can have a tiny tumor, 
even if it's a very aggressive tumor. It can be tiny, can be very small, can be the size of the end of your little finger or the end of a ballpoint pen, something around those sides. And you say to yourself, well, you know, we can be fairly firm with those because they're fairly localized. We can be fairly aggressive. We can make a wide margin without any difficulty. Therefore, that's a good line of attack. So, so the size of the lesion then becomes important. If, however, it's beyond all recognition for a surgical intervention, we, we did have a case recently that covered the whole of the side of the neck all the way down over the side, over the front, the left fore shoulder, and round into the armpit was just all one big sarcoid. And the, the veterinarian who referred it had taken a biopsy from it. And the pathologist, interestingly enough, had said, this is a sarcoid and described the sarcoid very accurately and put a little comment on it saying, usually wide surgical excision will be curative. I, I thought, how can you possibly say that? You know, so it's not a pathologist's job to tell us what to do. You know, it's our job to decide what's feasible and practical. So that's the second. Th so that's the second thing is the extent of the lesion, then the location, because as I said before, you know, there are different responses to the same treatment in different locations. So you can do BCG around the eye, but if you do BCG on the leg and the distal limb, it's going to make matters worse, not better. If you have a, a, a tumor in the upper eyelid and you want to treat that with laser surgery, that's going to be a real nightmare because you have to understand the pathology of that tumor. It will penetrate into the muscles of the upper eyelid. And then, so either you remove the whole tumor, in which case you remove the eyelid, in which case you threaten the eye, or you don't remove the muscles, in which case you just get the tumor come back. So you can see that the selection is important for that kind of understanding. What is the pathology I'm dealing with here? The armpit, you know, the axilla, the prefemoral flank fold forward of the stifle. That's an area where the skin is very thin, very unsupported, and any lesion that develops there is stretched and compressed and massaged every single step the horse takes. It, it stretches the tumor and squashes it and rubs it good and hard. Well, does a tumor really need squashing and squeezing and stretching and rubbing? I don't think so. So these are difficult. And then you have to say, well, I need something with more capability of spreading in the area. So nothing on the outside is going to work. No surgery will work because I can't get this whole area out. Therefore, I have to do something else. So the location is a really important issue. So it's type of sarcoid, extent of sarcoid, location of sarcoid. Then comes the next most important thing of all. What has been done before? Because if you have a failure, the prognosis for the next treatment attempt is 40% less. And if you absolutely, and you'll be right to be to be amazed by that, it's 40% less for almost every single type of tumor. And that's because the tumor is exacerbated by interference. And that's not a surprise because it happens in every tumor in every species. There's always the threat of exacerbation, particularly for a tumor with a very high invasive capability, which is the sarcoid. Sarcoid is quite different from tumors like a melanoma and stuff like this, which tend to remain fairly localized, even if there are lots of them. You know, they, they, they don't need a big margin. But a sarcoid, you need a big margin. And we know that if you're going to take 
a surgical blade to a sarcoid, you in order to get a 65% chance of success, you have to leave a one and a half centimeter margin. And for each centimeter wider than that, you go up by 10% prognosis. So you can see it's a very dangerous thing when you're trying to get 80 or 90% chance of success because you're going to be cutting out a huge area of skin, which probably will never heal and probably will have been seeded during the process anyway. So you can see what's been done before really matters as well. And sometimes owners have tried all sorts of things. And actually, they irritate the skin. They do. If you put turmeric on your own skin and rub it in, turmeric paste, which is curry paste, you know, actually don't do that. You know, put it in the curry, you know, and eat it, you know. And why is it that Indian people still get throat cancer and bowel cancer when they're eating kilograms of this stuff? You know, how is it possible? That this has this amazing beneficial effect. Of course, there's an in every lie there is an element of truth, and in every truth there is an element of lie. So th- there's a tiny little aspect of turmeric that does have an anti-tumor replication effect. It has a little effect on it to some extent or another. But when you look at the at the things, so now, of course, going back to your question, we've, we've wandered off there a little bit, but, but going back to your question, then you say to yourself, well, what's available to me? It would be nice to have some facility. And furthermore, what is my expertise? What is my own expertise? Is it, am I the best person to be dealing with this horse? Or is it better being dealt with by somebody else? who's more experienced at doing exactly this. So if you have a tumor in the corner of the, of the eye, you know, I'd be very careful if I said, well, I'll just have a go. You know, I'll just pick up my scalpel and have a go because I'm a veterinarian, you know. But an owner is not comfortable with that. You know, if that was you, what would you expect for yourself? You know, if your doctor prescribed you, I, I've not done this before, but I, I think I'll have a go at this tumor on your eyelid. You know, think, oh, hang on, hang on. You say you haven't done it before. No, I haven't done it before. So, I, whoa, hang on. I'm not going to do that. You know, uh, I'm going to go somewhere else. Can you not refer me to someone? And I think we don't use that service enough because there are people with a lot of expertise, a lot of facility, surgical, medical, radiation, chemotherapeutic facility, where the owner can get a better overall result. Of course, everybody says, well, what's the next two things that matter? The next two things are very important. One is the compliance of the owner and the horse. Okay. The owner has to be, has to understand that if this horse needs treatment and it's got to be treated every day for six weeks, you know, then the owner has to do it or it has to stay in a hospital and get done just like it would be for you and me. Why is it different? It's not different. And then the horse has to tolerate it as well. So if the horse gets very sore from the first one and he sees you coming the second time, he doesn't like you very much. And by the time you've done two weeks of it, the horse hates you, you know, and you can think of some sites like the ear, for example, you try and treat a sarcoid on the ear and you make the horse head shy for the rest of its life. You know, so compliance of the horse and compliance of the owner is very important. And then, of course, the ultimate thing is what's the cost of it all? You know, how much is the owner going to have to pay? Is the cost of the treatment worth more than the horse? I mean, emotion is usually a lot of 
uh, of the involvement in horses because you know it's not really a a food animal in the normal sense where we would just say oh this has got a tumor on its horn we'll just we'll kill it and eat it you know um, we don't do that in horses because everybody wants to keep the horse for the duration or they may want to sell it again you know so what happens now when you've got a, a tumor and if now the horse can't touch its head or its eye or its leg because it had a big tumor on it's going to have a scar and then what you know so those are the i think those are the main criteria that whenever you see a sarcoid that should flash through your mind as to those little criteria and say right on balance this is what's available to me this is what's affordable by the owner. This is what's tolerable by the horse. And it has a reasonable chance of success. Then you go for it. And I, I think I'm going to wrap it up with just this question. Is it possible to prevent sarcoids or at least prevent their progression? Uh, there, there are some basic principles which are important when, when you see this circumstance. Well, firstly, you have to realize that the tumor on that horse has come from somewhere. It didn't just happen along like a virus blowing on the wind. It didn't happen like that. So usually, if you look where sarcoids occur, you recognize that there is a summer-related transmissibility. So I always say, that a horse that has a sarcoid is genetically liable to the disease, and that genetic liability remains with it for life, notwithstanding those tumors that I told you about that spontaneously resolve. So if they have one, they're likely to get more, both recurrences at previously treated sites and new ones. Second, second corollary to that is the more tumors they have, the more they get. So, of course, the second part of that is the less they have, the less they get. And so that's why you have to remove them. So if you want to get fewer tumors, you have to bias yourself towards having fewer tumors on the horse. So that's an important issue. And because they multiply over the summer and grow over the winter, because this is a vector-related disorder in some way or another, I have my own hypothesis as to why this happens, but if you can control fly attack, on sarcoids in particular. So if a horse has a sarcoid and you decide you can't treat it, protect it at all costs from fly attack because that sarcoid can be transmitted both from that site to other sites on the horse and at least to some extent, almost certainly from horse to horse by the vector. Now, this is because sarcoids are, if, if we assume that there's flies involved in this simply because of where they occur, how they occur, and the seasonal nature of the onset of sarcoid, we have to imagine that this is a vector-related disorder. Some research has identified that it's not the biting flies that cause the problem. And certainly, that's not my experience. We, we're just currently doing a little study on fly attack on these, on these cases. Uh, fly, the flies that attack sarcoid and the flies that attack and bite at other sites. Biting flies are like, you know, President Biden, he doesn't go to McDonald's. I know some presidents do, but, but that, that, that's another issue. But, but, but generally, hooligans and youngsters and teenagers and everybody go to McDonald's to get cheap, greasy, sweet, salty, disgusting, warm, 24-7 available food. Now that's fine. That's fine. But but and so surface feeding flies feed on sarcoid. 
but then biting flies create a wound. And a wound is the key to sarcoid. So if a horse has a sarcoid, you must protect every single wound the horse gets. And you must protect them from fly attack. So when you have a stable yard full of horses, those horses with sarcoid should, in my view, be quarantined over the summer. It's not the healthy horses that need to be quarantined. It's the sick ones, the, the diseased ones. And they need to be kept for their own for their own welfare and for the welfare of the contact horses behind netted windows and netted doors to stop the fly attack. And if you do that and turn them out at night when there's no flies about, that's fine. Because that way you will restrict the amount of, of de novo sarcoids you get on new horses that are genetically liable, but currently don't have the disease. So in a word, just in a single line, you can manage this disease. You can reduce the number that you get, but you must be proactive about those which have it. Well, Dr. Nottenbelt, I have to say that I have learned a lot today, and I know our listeners have are, are really going to enjoy this podcast. And we want to thank our listeners for joining us and a special thanks to our 2022 sponsor, Merck Animal Health. And if you want to go back and listen to any other episodes of Disease Du Jour, look, go to your favorite podcast network or just go to equimanagement.com and we have a player right there on the article page for each episode. And if you have any questions or suggestions, send an email to me at kbrown, that's the letter K Brown at equinenetwork.com. Disease Du Jour is a production of the Equine Podcast Network, an entity of the Equine Network, LLC.